When everyone is on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. Before you drift off into one of our meditations or dive into a podcast interview, I would like to share with you one of the new opportunities for our listeners at The Mindful Movement. This is Sarah Raymond, and I'm so excited to announce the expansion of our coaching services to include two of my good friends and excellent coaches, Nikki Dyer and Laura Cannon. Both Nikki and Laura provide their own unique skill sets, allowing us to meet the needs of our growing audience. If you want to learn more, just follow the coaching link in the show notes. As always, we are grateful for your support and look forward to working with you. Hello and welcome to the Mindful Movement. I'm your host, Les Raymond, and I want to thank you for joining me today for another episode. Today's episode is with Dr. Paul Saladino. Dr. Paul Saladino has meant a lot to me over these last couple years. I've been following his work, and I'd say he's probably one of the leading voices on the use of a meat, predominantly meat-based diet to gain uh, better health outcomes. Now, at first when I heard this idea, it was really tough on me and it challenged me to kind of look at my reality and my belief systems and be able to really be as objective as possible to what was happening. I went through over the years many different dietary plans and I know diet can be um, really individual and you know it's definitely different for everybody but it seemed like the more I followed I guess the general narrative of the more plants you eat the better the worse my outcomes were and for a while I was I guess in denial of that um, I just didn't want to believe it and when I first heard people doing so well really reducing plants in their diet, it, um, you know, it was hard for me to make space in my mind for. And that's something I would really like to challenge the listeners with today. A lot of what you hear today might be just so contradictory to what we've been told for so long. And as humans, we have this tendency to really hold tight onto some of our beliefs and our ideas. And sometimes, you know, that could get us in trouble and get us outcomes that really aren't desirable. So just as a opportunity to grow on a personal level, you know, making space for ideas that are very different than ours, I think is really useful and beneficial. And this is a case where it's been really impactful for both me on my own health journey and my clients that have used some of these ideas. I'm really grateful for the work that 
Dr. Saladino is doing and, and shining a light on some of these ideas. Uh, I'm really excited to see where this goes over these next few years. I hope you can get something out of this uh, that you might find useful. And if you have any questions, please send it in. And again, I just ask you today to keep an open mind. Some of these ideas might be very different than what your current beliefs are. But I know for myself, when I let go of my beliefs and I really kind of surrendered just to the idea of being open to what would happen, when I implemented the ideas that Dr. Saladino talks about, I could not deny the positive results I was getting. And it made me really excited about um, you know, where I could take my own health. And being that on this channel, Ooh, a fly on my face there. You know, giving people power to play a bigger role in their own sense of well-being is really important. And I feel like the tools that Dr. Saladino provides for us can be just so impactful as a tool that we could use when we're navigating our own journey. So again, thanks again for tuning in today. Um, and if you have any questions, shoot them our way. I hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, welcome to the Mindful Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Les Raymond. Thanks for joining me today for another episode. I'm really excited about the guest today. This is someone that has a really impactful, uh, he's been really impactful in my own uh, healing journey and even through me has affected positively several of my clients over the last year or so. His name is Dr. Paul Saladino. He's the leading authority on the science and application of the carnivore diet. And he's used this diet to reverse autoimmune issues, chronic inflammation, and mental health issues in hundreds of patients, many of whom have been told that their conditions were really untreatable. He's the host of the popular Fundamental Health Podcast and the author of the best-selling book, The Carnivore Code. Dr. Saladino is board certified as a physician nutrition specialist and in psychiatry and completed residency at the University of Washington. Right now he's living in Austin, Texas and can frequently be found exploring wild places when he's not writing, researching, or working with clients. Uh, Dr. Saladino, please say hello to the Mindful Movement audience. Thanks for having me on, it's so good to be here. So I have so many things I wanna ask you, but uh, it might be a little overwhelming for the audience. And because the nature of you know, what you've been working on these last few years, can really shake up people's like belief systems. And it really takes, I guess, like an open mind for some folks to just make space for some of these ideas. I thought we would kind of go slow today and uh, make this like an entry point for people that uh, really just want to dip their toe into, you know, what a new idea might present for them. Uh, maybe you could fill the audience in really how you got so involved with this carnivore diet and what brought you to where you are today. Yeah, it's an interesting story. And I love, I love that jumping off point. I think that one of the coolest things that we can do as humans is challenge our ideas, challenge the, the, the deeply held beliefs that, that may not really be founded. And it's so interesting to think about how amnestic we are in our consciousness. You know, in 2020, I'm 43 years old. All I can remember is, you know, the second half of the 1980s and the 1990s and the 2000s. So I have, that's all, that's all my consciousness knows. That's all of the paradigm that I know is from those 30 to 40 years. And yet there's so much human history. There's so much anthropology. There's so much biology that, that precedes that. And 
I really think of this, this idea around this lifestyle and asking these questions of what a species appropriate diet is for humans, trying to remember things that we may have forgotten. And that's an interesting idea because if we are just told some set of ideas for our whole life, it's, it's quite freeing to think, man, maybe there's a whole different set of ideas around nutrition and human health that, that have been lost because we've been fed ideas that are based on shoddy science, based on the wrong type of interpretation of observational studies. We're gonna get into all of that today. So it's a fun place to be. It's a little scary, but it's a fun place to be. Personally, I, I had my own autoimmune issues. I had eczema and asthma growing up. I grew up in a family of doctors. My dad is an internist. My mom is a nurse practitioner and I was over-medicated. I got theophylline, which is theater and my applesauce. And I got lots of albuterol inhalers all the time when my asthma would flare up. And there was never any real attention to to, to what, what it might've been caused by. It was just the mainstream medical paradigm. And this is not for lack of well-intentioned or intelligent physicians. I mean, my father is one of the people I respect most greatly in this life. I think most of us look up to our parents in some way or another, but you know, he, he wasn't trying to harm me, but he only knew asthma, give him this methylxanthine, give him theophylline, give him this albuterol inhaler. He has eczema, give him steroid cream. And as a child, I wasn't overeating. I mean, I wasn't necessarily eating good food all the time, but I wasn't overeating. I wasn't obese as a child. I wasn't having excess calories. I wasn't not exercising. I was a child, I was moving. And yet I had clear autoimmune illness. And this idea of what causes autoimmune illness in humans is fascinating to me because of my own journey. So I had this eczema throughout my whole life. College, it got really bad. I, I was in college. I wasn't thinking about what I was eating. Occasionally I did, but never really with the, the granular nature that I do today. Medical school, it was bad. Even before medical school, I went to PA school. I was a physician assistant in cardiology for four years and realized the mainstream medical paradigm that was symptom focused and pharmaceutical based was not going to be something that I could practice in. I needed to go back to medical school to get an MD, which I did at the University of Arizona. Then I went to residency at the University of Washington. And throughout those eight years, medical school and residency, I still had horrible eczema, knees, elbows. I was doing a lot of jujitsu. It prevented me from doing that. At times it was all over my lower back. It exploded up my back and onto my, my chest. And I thought, what is going on here? And I'm not, at that time, I'm not overeating. You know, I'm a healthy individual. I'm doing lots of sports. I'm exercising. I'm in the sun. I'm eating good food. I'm eating almost an entirely organic paleo-based diet. And we can talk about what that is if listeners aren't familiar with a paleo type concept. And yet my eczema is pervasive. And I think, what am I missing? And I heard Jordan Peterson on Joe Rogan's podcast talking about this carnivore diet where you exclude all plants. And I thought, that's crazy. That's crazy. My first thought was, that's crazy. You need, we need plants in our diet, right? Here is me, you know, being challenged with my ideas and having the same sort of knee-jerk reaction to think, that's crazy. That's different than everything I've ever heard. You can't do that. Humans can't live on just animal foods. And, but then there's always a part of my personal brain that's really curious and thinks, what's over the next ridge? What is in that drainage? You know, what's in that canyon? Where should I go? Where should I explore? And the more I thought about it, I thought, okay, maybe there are toxins in plants. I mean, we all are familiar with this concept at a high level. People are gluten sensitive, or there are certain other plants that we don't react to well. Even in 2020, most people are familiar with nightshade vegetables or nightshade plants like tomato or eggplant or peppers that can trigger autoimmunity in some people. And a lot of people get better when they eliminate nightshades. But what's so interesting is that's just the tip of the iceberg. And, but just knowing those things 
and having this some sort of a framework around the fact that there are some toxins in plants made me think, okay, let's just get rid of it. Let's just get rid of these toxins in plants. And because I am interested in biochemistry and nutrition, if I'm going to get rid of plants, I need to make sure I'm getting all the nutrients that I possibly can in my diet. So how am I going to do that? Well, I'm not just going to eat meat. I'm going to eat meat and organs like our ancestors. You and I can get into this idea of nose to tail eating today. It's hugely important to me. And we can talk about how I constructed my diet. But lo and behold, two weeks after I cut out all the plants, my eczema has gone. Never has come back in over two years. And in addition to that, psychologically, I felt better. I just felt more clear, more poised, more emotionally sort of rooted. It was the, the, how likely I was to honk at someone in traffic index went down, <laughs> went way down. I was like, man, I didn't even think I was angry or depressed or anxious. And here I am like just way more relaxed as a person. It was like something changed in my brain. And that was the beginning of a fascinating rabbit hole that's taken me on some wild adventures over the last couple of years. I wrote a book, The Carnivore Code. I launched this uh, supplement company called Heart and Soil to get people desiccated organs if they won't eat the fresh organs. And, you know, I'm just so interested in exploring all of the notions that, that this idea challenges, that if humans can really thrive on all animal foods or mostly animal foods, the mainstream nutritional paradigm has a lot of answering to do because we've been told the complete opposite. And there are so many of those pieces that we'll get in today. And it just raises the it just raises so many questions. I thought meat caused cancer. I thought meat caused heart disease. I thought saturated fat was bad. I thought cholesterol was bad. I thought plants were necessary for fiber or whatever. And I thought the plants were really what we should be eating and it's turning it all on its head. And it really challenged us to think in a whole new way, which is a lot of fun. So yeah. here I am today and eczema is gone. You know, I feel yeah, I love your passion. So uh, just to clarify, how, how old are you now? 43. So 43, so we're the same age actually. And um, how long did you have eczema? My whole life. And now you've been on this kind of nose to tail approach, really eliminating all plants for two years. It was, yeah, and, yep. and it Over took two only now, two yeah. weeks for the eczema to go away and it hasn't come back? Never came back, no. In fact, there's an interesting wrinkle here. It came back once when I tried to reintroduce plants. So okay. I did this experiment, this is fast forwarding. I did this experiment where I reintroduced squash. And I think squash is one of the least toxic plant foods, but I reintroduced squash. And within about a week, I had this patch on my lower back, which is where I get it. I joke about this like eczema tattoo on my lower back. And I think, what is going on? So I know where my eczema comes up. And most people who are listening to this, if they have eczema, know they get eczema in some, some spot. I'll get eczema on my wrists and I'll get eczema starting on my low back. It's really strange. And when I did this squash for a couple of weeks, it was even probably less than two weeks. I started to get eczema on my low back. And I thought, that is so weird. I showed my friends at the gym. I was like, look at this. They were like, wow, it's crazy. Stop the squash, the eczema goes away. So this is just kind of the idea. Like you eliminate something, it goes away. You reintroduce, it comes back. Hmm, it's probably what's causing it or at least contributing in some way. So it's yeah. the same idea that something That's is That's the pieces it. of induction, of rationale of like, you know, using logic to, to figure things out. Um, that's a bit of a scientific approach. Yeah. So I, you don't know me yet, but I've been listening to you for a while. So I have heard that story, but I also eczema head to toe for a long time. I'm about 90, 95% out of the woods here. It's amazing. And what I've learned from you has definitely helped move the needle along with some other uh, things. And I haven't been as strict as you. And I definitely can speak from my own spirit experience that, 
when I'm more strict, I make more progress. And I also have it on my low back. It's one of the kind of nagging areas that I haven't been able to clear up. Hopefully this conversation will re-inspire me to, to get strict. I've gone through periods where I've kind of taken what you've said and, and tried it out pretty strict and a lot of good things happen. I, I live in a house with five other people and I do most of the cooking. And that in itself provides some challenges for me. And I like plants. So like a lot of times I'll eat plants thinking, I know there's a price to pay for this, but, and I, and I still do it because I enjoy cooking them. I enjoy the taste of them. I enjoy eating them. And it took me a long time to come to grips with and being honest with myself that just because I've learned that these are, you know, benign and good for me, you know, that might, obviously that's not reality. And maybe, for, and for some people it is, and I definitely see that some people can eat a lot of plants and don't seem to have any issues. I have my own theories about that. I, I kind of feel that sometimes that maybe the healthier your, your intestines are, maybe the more it can handle, maybe there's a genetic component. I'm not sure, maybe we'll get into some of those nuances today. But uh, I know I got Lyme a few years ago and I went on antibiotics. And it was like broad spectrum antibiotics for three weeks. And shortly after that is when my eczema came on. And it's mm. like, I couldn't handle all kinds of things that I used to be able to handle. But those things that I couldn't handle, they were all plants. And, you know, I love plants. I went, I remember I went vegan for a while. I think you did a stint from what I've heard as a vegan. And, um, you know, and nutrition talks can be so weird because, you know, we could get dogmatic and we could really get tribal in a way. And it allow it, it makes where really hard to be honest with yourself and have like adult conversations and, you know, explore and learn. So um, I really applaud you for the way you've been presenting this message in a very, um, like not dogmatic way over these last few years. And it's been very inviting to, to learn from you. So I appreciate that. And I'm grateful that, for the work that you're doing. It's been, um, you know, just a great way to hear it. But um, I remember when I went vegan for like a month and I have a family member that's vegan and I, I mean, maybe she inspired me to do it. And like, I didn't feel bad, but man, all the weight in the gym got so much heavier. <laughs> and it made me think like, I remember I was gearing up for, um, I don't know if you're familiar. Uh, it was like, I think these companies now have split off, but it used to be RKC. It was like a kettlebell. It was like a strength certification that I did back in the day. And one thing that's different about these um, like strength certifications as a lot, as opposed to a lot of other like movement modalities, they have like performance requirements. So it's not like you go and take a yoga class and you have to demonstrate that, you know, you, you could verbalize, you could cue, you could teach, like you gotta, you gotta move some weight. And it's fairly demanding. So like you have to train, you can't just show up. You have to practice. And um, I was gearing up for it. And so this is a time where you don't want to all of a sudden get weaker. And man, I got weak, like fast. And it was like, I was alarmed. I was like, oh my gosh, like my warm-up weight is now feeling like <laughs> my work weight. And then my coach at the time was like, he heard that I kind of was exploring with vegan and he like slapped that right out of me. He's like, you know, what are you crazy? So, um, and I got the strength back pretty quick, but it made me think like that can't be normal. Like I can't imagine a thousand years ago that 
like everybody was weak. Like I can't imagine that we're supposed to be weak. How, like how are you gonna really procreate and do all the things required to survive as a species if you're, you know, if you can't transfer force through your body? And I agree completely. And I don't think that it has to be vegan versus carnivore. Mm. It's not plants or meat. I'll just, I'll lay out the framework with which I see this because I think this is helpful for people. My goal with this is not to convince everyone in the world to stop eating all plants or to eat a diet that's composed entirely of meat. My goal is really threefold. Number one, to help people understand that red meat and organs are the most nutritionally rich and dense foods on the planet. They allowed our ancestors to thrive in ways that they never had before. They allowed them to be strong and to grow big brains. And they have been, these foods have been incorrectly vilified for the last 70 years based on bad science. And they are an integral part of any optimal human diet, full stop. Number two, plants exist on a toxicity spectrum and eliminating the most toxic plants or all plants if you choose, but you can also just eliminate the most toxic plants will often allow people to gain levels of health they never knew possible. And I'm really not dogmatic about this. I've realized that even though I don't eat plants, 95% of people are gonna wanna include some plants in their diet for color, variety, texture, and that's awesome. And I think our ancestors ate plants occasionally in smaller amounts as survival foods, not necessarily as the central food that they were seeking, and we can talk about this, but as survival foods. So I think it's okay for us to eat plants. But what I'm really interested in is helping people understand, at least from my perspective, this is just my hypothesis, my opinion. I believe if you think about things from the perspective of plants, there is a spectrum of toxicity in terms of parts of plants, stems, roots, leaves, seeds, fruit, and a toxicity among different types of plants, and that there are less toxic plants and more toxic plants. And if you want to include plants, you can include the least toxic plants and do a lot better. And that allows probably 10 to 100x more people to engage in this diet as a carnivore-ish type diet, as an animal-based diet, rather than a strict black and white full carnivore diet. So I'm really interested in that diet now more than anything, animal-based which is the complete opposite of plant-based, right? Make animal meat and organs the center of your diet and eat the least toxic plants. I think that's gonna help 95 to 98% of people. And the third piece that I'm helping people understand or hoping that I can communicate is that the processing of vegetable oils is a major, major contributor to chronic disease. This is the seed oil conversation because at some level, we have to ask ourselves what is causing us to get sick. So there's a lot of competing ideas within the nutrition sphere right now, but I don't think anyone can deny that as a human population, or even more specifically as a Western population in North America, or even the United States of America, in the last 50 to 60 years, our health has gone into the toilet. That's really, that's really unarguable. Like we are getting more sick. So we have to ask the question, why are we getting more sick? And if you look at the data, it's a very fascinating story. We're not exercising less, we're exercising more. We're smoking less, we're drinking less alcohol, and we're listening to, quote, health advice. So despite the, the mainstream sort of idea that we're just eating more junk food, and that's the reason we're all unhealthy, it actually looks like we're doing that less, but we are massively more unhealthy. Diabetes rates are skyrocketing. 
obesity and overweight rates are now greater than 70% of the population combined. 70% obese and overweight. Crazy. Metabolic health is just a nightmare. And so we have to ask these questions. Why are we so unhealthy? And when I look at that data, it's pretty clear that that's related to an increased consumption of polyunsaturated vegetable oils. We can get into that too. So those are the three pieces I'm trying to help people understand. Red meat and organs, the most valuable foods on the planet. Don't fear them. Make them the center of your diet. Plants exist on a toxicity spectrum. You don't have to eliminate all of them, but if you're suffering autoimmune issues, eczema, psoriasis, psychiatric issues, thyroid issues, any of these things, inflammatory issues, GI issues, I want to give people a tool that helps them stick outside of the box and say, wait, maybe I should eliminate plants rather than eating more plants because the mainstream narrative right now is that if you have a problem, you should eat more plants. You should all eat right. less meat and more plants. And I'm saying actually eat more meat and less plants. It's completely the opposite. And, and you, you use a great word there, like tool. I mean, it could, this can be used <clears throat> as a tool. It doesn't have to, like some, some people could be overwhelmed the idea of like, I have to change what I do for the rest of my life. And, you know, that can be overwhelming just to think about, but just to know that like there's different tools out there to try and then, you know, be honest, like, did it help you? Does this allow you to, you know, did this provide more utility for you? Did this allow your body to provide more utility for the you that's inside? Are you able to enjoy life more with fewer issues and, and you know, be objective as possible when, when analyzing that and get away from and, and be okay with like not holding on to beliefs real tight and, and see what that brings you. You know, let's talk toxins for a little bit because um, the word is thrown around a lot and, there's something, um, and I, I try to think of like what happens, and you're a doctor, maybe you could shed some light on this. Like when we put food in our body, you know, what takes place? Because when I think of an animal, I think of that it's kind of made of the same stuff as us. So it's made of like amino acids and fatty acids and minerals and water and vitamins, I guess. And um, like those don't, I assume that those don't go through our like detox pathways. Like we don't, they don't have to go through phase one and phase two liver detox to prepare to leave us because they can become us. But like when you eat a plant, there might be like some amino and fatty acids, depending upon what kind of plant it is. But a lot of that material doesn't actually ever become our body. And I, I think there's an argument that it can feed the microorganisms in our intestines and that could create byproducts that could be used as a fuel source, whether they're, maybe they're creating, you know, short chain fatty acids, and then we could use that for some kind of fuel system. But basically a lot of that material has to impose some burden on our detoxification pathways. It's like work, like our work to do. And maybe like, I have a theory that maybe a thousand years ago, that was fine because we didn't have, you know, 80 some thousand man-made chemicals that we also have to deal with. Like we didn't have the tox the overall toxic burden. It's just a theory. Like I, when I went to a functional medicine doctor locally, when I was um, not feeling good, he did some like blood work and he said from one of the um, tests, he says, yeah, I think you have mold toxicity. Check your house out. So sure enough, had the house checked out and like the attic above our bedroom was like, covered in mold. And he did some genetic tests along the way. And he says, you know, you have, you know, not the best genetics for detoxification. So, you know, some people might be able to handle that kind of mold exposure. And it also made me wonder, like, maybe some people 
are better at it, and maybe a thousand years ago, it didn't matter if you had those genes or not, because there just wasn't the overall burden that we have. And maybe plants just put people over the threshold where it's too much because we're dealing with so much other toxins from our environment. I don't yeah, know if you thought about that. Yeah. <clears throat> it's not really a question of it's not really a question of if plants have toxins. It's a question of how well we detoxify them. So I, I agree with you. But the, the, the notion that plants have toxins is foreign to a lot of people. So you kind of have to back up for a second and, okay. and think about it from the perspective of a plant. Um, I mean, plants are beautiful. You know, in this room that you're sitting, there's plants behind you. I've got plants behind me. Plants are life. And, and, but plants are rooted in the ground. You could turn around if you wanted and just start eating those plants behind you all you wanted. They're not going to be able to run away. They don't have spikes. They don't have claws. They don't have teeth. Most of them don't. Uh, a couple of plants have spikes like roses or cacti, but you know, I'm looking outside my window here in Austin, Texas, and everything is super green because we just had a bunch of thunderstorms. And if that were all food that I could eat without regard, then I don't even have to eat breakfast. I can just walk outside and start munching on the grass and my lawn and then go eat some trees. And life is a whole lot easier if I don't have to, if I don't even have to buy my food or hunt my food. I, none of these trees can run away from me. They're completely defenseless. So you, again, we have to transcend our, our amnesia in 2020 and think, okay, wait a minute, humans have been around for 4 million years, depending where we draw the line of hominid ancestry, Australopithecus, Homo habilis, Homo erectus. And before that we had primate ancestry for 60 to 90 million years. But even further back, plants and animals of all sorts, dinosaurs, which existed on this earth, have been co-evolving for 450 million years. That's a long amount of time. And just like we can go out and eat plants if they don't run away from us, other animals, I mean, freaking brontosaurus, you know, triceratops, these were massive herbivorous animals that had to eat plants too. And it's crazy to think about that these animals walked the earth at some time in, in ancient history, but plants are rooted in the ground and they have to defend themselves. They had to, out of necessity, evolve chemicals to create some sort of distancing. Plants had to social distance also in some way. <laughs> they had to kind of put their hand out and go, hey, don't come that close to me all the time. Don't overconsume me. And of course, herbivorous animals, whether it's a giraffe or an elephant in today's contemporary world or dinosaurs or other animals throughout millions and millions of years, they've eaten some plants. But if you look at the way herbivorous animals behave today, they'll eat small amounts of certain plants. They know that some plants they can't eat because they're too toxic and they will cause frank toxicity. And they know that within any given plot of land, which is hopefully their normal ecosystem, they will have uh, a selection of plants which they can eat, but they're not gonna overconsume one or the other. So you can see this in cows and ruminants, grazing animals that have this ruminous stomach. They, they consume small amounts of individual plants. And if they're forced to consume large amounts of any one plant, they will get sick. There are actually recorded incidences, many of these, of mass deaths of ruminant animals when they're cordoned off, when they're forced to overeat certain plants and they don't have their normal ability to graze and eat varieties of plants in the landscape. You can also give animals like this anti-nausea drugs and they'll overconsume certain plants and get very sick because their, their, their normal mechanisms don't kick in. All of this is just to say that plants have toxins. And even animals that exclusively eat plants understand this and have to manage it. Well, humans are almost a, they're, they're, we're, we're a different species, right? We're not herbivores. We're clearly omnivores, but what does omnivore mean? It means we can eat plants and animals 
And, you know, we can talk about the relative nutritional value of these, but there's no question that the plants we eat have toxins. What's super interesting, and we can get into this, is that many of the compounds, in fact, the majority of the compounds that we think of as healthy in plants are actually plant defense molecules. We've got the paradigm all wrong. It's been completely turned upside down. I think it's, I'm trying to turn it right side up, but I think it's upside down. I think it's backwards from the very beginning that we're actually thinking these plant defense molecules are good for us when in fact they're just, they're plant defense molecules. These are molecules that are built to dissuade us and other animals, insects, or fungi from over-consuming these plants. And in our liver, because of these plant toxins, we have out of necessity had to develop phase one and phase two detoxification systems. The reason we have these enzymatic systems in our liver, and I talk about all these enzymatic systems in the book, is because we've been eating some plants out of necessity. We had to develop these things. We had to detoxify these things. Mm. But you're right, in 2020, we have a much bigger toxic burden and there's individual variation in terms of how much of these we can detoxify. Now, the great irony begins to be that if you look at supplement manufacturers today, they're trying to get us to consume more of these plant defense molecules, and they're trying to short circuit our body's defense mechanisms so that we absorb more of them because we've got the whole paradigm wrong. This is the story with curcumin. And this is one of these polyphenolic molecules found in turmeric. And turmeric is sacrosanct. People believe turmeric to be so nutritious and so beneficial for us. But when you think about it, turmeric is a root in the ground that belongs to a plant, part of the ginger family. That, that root doesn't want to get eaten. And turmeric is a molecule that just in and of itself, if you eat, turmeric is a, is a, is a root. And if you eat that, the curcumin and turmeric, most of it will get excreted. Probably 98, 99% will get excreted. Our body is very good at glucuronidating, adding a glucuronide moiety and phase two detoxification to curcumin, getting it out of our body just really quickly. Well, what have we done? We said, oh, if you eat curcumin, if you eat turmeric with black pepper, you'll absorb 2000 more times of the curcumin. That's all predicated on the notion that curcumin is good for you and that you want curcumin in your body. Whereas evolutionarily, there's a clear indication that you don't want this in your body. Your body's getting rid of it. Your body is detoxifying this. And the reason black pepper does that is because there's a compound in black pepper called piperine, in addition to other toxic compounds in black pepper, which is a seed. But piperine inhibits an enzyme called UDP glucuronosyl transferase. It's a mouthful. It's the enzyme in the phase two detoxification system in your liver that adds glucuronoid to curcumin. So if you can't detoxify curcumin, the levels in your body go up 2000%. And this is again, if the if curcumin because is good- Because it's just spending more time in circulation basically? because it's, it's spending not... more time in circulation. You can't get rid of it and you absorb it and then you can't get rid of it. So now, can we pause right there? I tried to, I had a naturopath doctor uh, not long ago talk about detox and I tried to get them to kind of detail this to lay some con context and um, it didn't go as well as I wanted, but um, correct me if I'm wrong, I'll, I'll try to summarize this for our listeners. As far as I understand, phase one is where you basically make some, I think you add a hydroxyl group. You, the body goes through a process to make a toxin more reactive so that in phase two, it could use one of about a handful of different pathways to make that toxin become basically water soluble or more water soluble so it could be excreted through urination or evacuation pooping. So, um, and glucuron, so there's a number of these, like um, glutathione has a pathway. Uh, I think there's 
acetylation, methylation, um, methylation sulfation, I think mm -hmm. we have a sulfur group. Mm -hmm. So there's all these different strategies that the body has developed to get rid of stuff that it doesn't want to stay inside. And glucuronidation is one of them. And so this compound, so normally through glucuronidation, we would take these phenolic, or at least some of the phenolic compounds and bind to them or, um, I guess it's called conjugate with them to make them water soluble. And pepper, black pepper, has um, this compound that inhibits that or inhibits something that winds up kind of being like a cleave, cleave, I guess cleaving the toxin away from the glucuronidate. Glucuronide. So, yeah, piperine inhibits the enzyme that adds glucuronide to curcumin or other molecules. So, so the when supplement you, industry has basically added that intentionally so that your body does not detoxify it yes. and it stirs around longer Yes. to get ideally, like in theory, I guess the benefits that they're proposing comes right. with the curcumin. Curcumin, curcumin. Now, exactly. Can, like what if somebody pushes back and say, well, maybe the dose makes the poison. I mean, can you make an argument that if the dose is right, that curcumin works? Like, when, like, I, we don't want a plate full of ibuprofen, but isn't there a time where, like, if you take one, it serves a purpose for a short period of time to have some kind of anti-inflammatory response? And cucurbin, like, if the dose is right, it can be good for us? Or do you feel like there's really no room for that? And I'll explain it. So, okay. again, this is another part where we've got the perspective all wrong. This is the concept of hormesis, essentially, at a high level. A small amount of a poison is good for you, right? Dose makes the poison hormetic. There are things in the environment that are hormetics. Sunlight, cold exposure, sauna, heat, exercise, ketosis. These are what I call environmental hormetics. We're not putting a molecule into our body. Even radiation does this to us to some extent. You know, I have a number of friends who are radiologists. Just living on the surface of the earth, we're exposed to radiation. Low levels of radiation, exercise, sunlight, things that we as humans would have experienced throughout our entire evolution, they do upregulate our body's antioxidant mechanisms, endogenous antioxidant mechanisms. But putting in molecules, this is xenohormesis or molecular hormesis, and I'm contrasting that with environmental hormesis is very different. You made this point earlier of pointing out that plant molecules don't participate directly in human biochemistry. They're basically just detoxified and excreted. There's no point in human biochemistry where we need curcumin to do a reaction that we can't do without curcumin. Now, I'm not debating that plant molecules have physiologic activity or pharmacologic activity in the human body. Things like sulforaphane, curcumin, resveratrol, these do affect our physiology. The question that we must ask here is, are they affecting it positively? Is it a net positive effect? And I'm gonna say it's not. And this is what we've gotten all wrong. So if you think about curcumin, curcumin does appear to have some, quote, anti-inflammatory activity, but you astutely point out that there are other molecules like non-steroidal anti-inflammatories non like ibuprofen or naproxen, which have a similar effect. But if you go to the store and you pick up ibuprofen, Motrin, or Aleve, naproxen, there's a package insert there that gives you all the side effects associated with that molecule. Why do we assume that curcumin doesn't have side effects?
Yeah, if it does we're the never, same thing. But we're never to. told. Well, it doesn't have quite the same mechanism. I'm not sure that it's been elucidated that curcumin affects the prostaglandin system in the same way that ibuprofen and naproxen, but it, it, affects, it affects some inflammatory pathways in similar ways. But why would curcumin not have side effects? It's an exogenous molecule. And in fact, many of the molecules we use in the human body pharmacologically are from plants. Aspirin is from willow, right? Digoxin is from digitalis. Metformin is from the French lily. All of these are pharmaceutical medications. And if you get them in an FDA approved pill from your pharmacist, they also must hand you something called a package insert, which has all these side effects. Aspirin will cause bleeding. Aspirin can cause exacerbation of all sorts of other issues. Aspirin can cause arrhythmias, right? Metformin can cause B12 deficiency. Metformin can cause lactic acidosis. All these medications, digoxin can cause massive electrolyte instability and completely kill you if you take too much of it. So why do we believe that plant molecules are benign? They're not. They're exogenous molecules. They work in exactly the same way. I would never debate that these molecules don't have physiological effect, but what we've always ignored repeatedly is the side effects of these molecules. In the case of curcumin, I elaborate this in the book, there's a large amount of literature to suggest that that molecule plays very badly in the rest of the body, that you really don't want 2,000 times the amount of curcumin in your body that you normally would have. It can affect the enzymes that wind and unwind DNA, they're called topoisomerases. It can affect thioredoxin reductase, which is involved in normal antioxidant signaling. It can affect a potassium channel called the Herg channel. In cell culture, curcumin, the polyphenolic molecule, has been shown to damage DNA and even to harm both cancerous and healthy human cells. So we see this over and over and over. We see this with sulforaphane. We see this with resveratrol. We see this with all these plant molecules, but we're never told about it. We're never told about the side effects. So then we have to ask ourselves a very sobering question. Are the risks worth the benefits? First of all, we're never told about the risks, but I will tell you about the risks. They're out there. If you do the research, every one of those molecules has bad effects in the human body because it's, ex it's an exogenous molecule. You're taking a plant medicine, right? Now, I don't think the benefits are worth the risks because the benefits are redundant. In the case of curcumin, why are you taking in an anti-inflammatory? What is the root cause of that inflammation? I don't think humans should take ibuprofen or Aleve very much at all. If you have inflammation somewhere, if you have pain, we often know like what is causing the pain. If you have a splinter in the bottom of your foot, you're gonna pull the splinter out. You don't just take ibuprofen indefinitely. Oh, my foot hurts, I'm gonna take curcumin. Well, no, you pull the splinter out. You figure out what's causing the inflammation. But for some reason within the world of alternative medicine, which I don't even like the term, we've gotten this incorrect notion that, that humans are somehow always inflamed and that we should be trying to completely abrogate inflammation. We should be trying to completely get rid of all inflammation in the human body. That's just false. We use reactive oxygen species. We use oxidative reductive signaling. We use inflammation to signal good things. When you go to the gym and work out, you get inflammation and that's how your muscles grow, right? right? If you have inflammation in your body, your body is telling you something. Eczema, that is a type of inflammation. When your immune system is activated, that is inflammation. What we do in Western medicine is we see inflammation and we say, let's get rid of the inflammation. We don't think about the root cause. We give, Western medicine gives you and I a cream to put on our eczema. We don't think what's causing it. That's my problem with curcumin. People are taking turmeric every single day to fight inflammation, quote unquote, without actually thinking, why am I inflamed in the first place? And are there potential side effects to this molecule that we've been told is the bee's knees? When in fact, it's just a plant molecule that doesn't play well in our body at all. 
we've got it all wrong. I mean, there are so many superfood drinks out there right now with curcumin in them, with turmeric, because you have to get rid of inflammation. It's completely wrong. It's completely wrong. The same is the case with sulforaphane. We can talk about that one or resveratrol on and on and on. You can get these benefits. The idea with curcumin is figure out what's causing your inflammation. Yeah, if you have inflammation that you can't fix, curcumin may possibly be a less toxic molecule. We don't know that for sure. We're just assuming that than ibuprofen or a leaf or naproxen. But there's, a, there's an equal chance that ibuprofen, naproxen, or you know, acetosalicylic acid, aspirin, could also be less toxic molecules. You're just weighing the side effects. No one is better than another one. And they've, most of them came from plants anyway. So right. people have this false narrative that it came from plants. It's good for us. It's, it, no, it's pretty much all toxic for us. We just have to use it carefully. But ultimately, in curcumin's case, you have to figure out what is causing the inflammation. And inflammation is a signal that something is out of balance. You should not just squash that. You shouldn't ignore it. In the case of sulforaphane, which is a really common molecule, I'll just elaborate on that one, it'll make more sense. Sulforaphane is found in brassica vegetables. Sulforaphane is formed when brassica vegetables are chewed by insects, animals, or humans. There is no sulforaphane in broccoli or kale until you or I chew it. I don't chew it anymore. I've given that up. I'll probably never chew kale again in my whole life, but you get the idea. There is no sulforaphane. Sulforaphane is a pro-oxidant. It's not an antioxidant, it's a pro-oxidant. No general chemist, no organic chemist on the face of this planet would be, they would be thrown out of their position in a university if they tried to claim that sulforaphane was an antioxidant. It's a pro-oxidant. But what are we told 99.9% .9 of the time that sulforaphane is an antioxidant? They're completely wrong. We're talking about the movement of electrons. Stealing an electron from another molecule is oxidation. Giving an electron to another molecule is reduction, right? Gain of electrons, reduction, loss of electrons, oxidation. So forfane is stealing electrons. It's stealing electrons from other molecules. It's creating free radicals. It's creating lipid peroxides in our cell membranes. It's creating free radicals. That is a pro-oxidant. So does that trigger our antioxidant system and It does, it does. But you is know what else- Is that why it's referred to, but it's kind of misleading to refer to it as an antioxidant. Right, but you know what else is a pro-oxidant that does that? Alcohol, cigarette smoke, lead, mercury, are those good for us, right? So we have to so. understand, right? The products of cooking, malleard products, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, heterocyclic right. amines, these are all toxins and our body can deal with them. Just because it triggers our antioxidant response doesn't mean it's good for us. Are there any plants like blueberry, like are there any plant materials that do donate an electron that are true antioxidants or do they all work that way? I mean, I've, I'm not familiar with any plant molecule that plays an indispensable role as an antioxidant in our human body. Now, at certain concentrations, you can get electrons moving, but generally polyphenols steal electrons. Because of the aromatic structure, they're, they're pro-oxidants and they trigger our antioxidant response system. You also don't wanna to get too many reducing agents in your body either. You know, that can be a problem too if you imbalance the oxidative reductive balance. We have endogenous antioxidants. This is glutathione. This is molecules like vitamin E, vitamin C, coenzyme Q10, superoxide dismutase is an enzyme that does this. We have endogenous antioxidant molecules. They are doing this work. You can upregulate your endogenous antioxidants by taking cigarettes, mercury, lead, arsenic, sulforaphane, alcohol, whatever you want, but all of those have side effects.
Yeah. All those have side effects. You can also upregulate your endogenous antioxidants just by exercising or being in the sun or jumping in a cold river. And that's how we should do it. That is environmental hormesis. And that's what I argue in the book. Environmental hormesis trumps molecular hormesis every single time because what are the side effects to exercise? I don't know, a six pack, looking better, mm -hmm. feeling better, sleeping better, having more libido. Like those are the, there's no side effects to exercise. It's an environmental hormetic. It's not a molecular hormetic. The same is true with resveratrol. You want to activate your sirtuin genes, go low carb for a day or two, do some intermittent fasting like your ancestors certainly did. Ketogenic states, whether they're low carb or from fasting, activate sirtuins. You know what else resveratrol does that's bad? What's the package insert for resveratrol? Well, it inhibits the production of androgen precursors like DHEA. It's a xenoestrogen. So many of these polyphenolic molecules do that as well. They mimic 17-beta estradiol in the body. So quercetin, isoflavones from soy, they mimic estrogen. So That's you did just, thing. you just did speak to one that uh, mentioned a, I guess a polyphenol that I have relied on personally as medicine, uh, quercetin. So when I was in the, um, the worst of it with eczema, like that was the antihistamine that I relied on and it, it was effective. And like, I guess I'm trying to find balance in my mind where like, yeah, I don't want a plate of medicine and call it a meal, but plants right. clearly have a, a role. Like I, I have always believed that like, there's a wisdom that in our body and in the planet that we're, you know, is going on that we're not maybe in on the conversation, but it, um, you know, if there's a problem that the answer probably is already somewhere on the planet. And that was like paramount for me to rely on to get through, you know, not using a steroid cream. There's a difference between using plants as medicine and using plants as food. Right. So plants as medicine versus plants as food. Plants are not food, in my opinion, for humans. They're survival food. Sure, they can be used as medicine, and I think our ancestors did. What did our ancestors do when they had a parasite? Well, they probably took a little bit of black walnut or a little bit of oregano to try and get rid of the parasite. Now, again, we have to back up and say, what is causing the problem? If you are using a medicine, are you correcting the root cause of the problem? In some cases, you might be if you are using a medication or a molecule found in a plant to kill a parasite, right? The majority of the time, if you are using quercetin as an antihistamine to treat eczema, my question is, what's causing the eczema? You're treating a symptom. I'm not debating that plants have pharmacologic activity. I said that originally. What I am saying is this should not be used as food. It should not be conflated with something that is uniquely entirely benevolent for humans. Because really, most of this conversation is about plants as food. I think plants are incredible medicine. I've used aspirin in the past. I don't use it now. But people can use aspirin. People can use metformin, they can use digoxin, they can use these medications. Now, does that correct the root cause? Does metformin fix the root cause of diabetes? Absolutely not. Will it fix the symptom by inhibiting gluconeogenesis at the level of the liver? Yeah. Yeah, it can, fit, it can help it. But if you're willing to understand the root cause, the hope is that you don't need those plant medicines in the same way. Are plant medicines valuable from a psychedelic perspective? Absolutely. There's so much research on psilocybin and other plant-derived molecules that can be very helpful for people with traumatic experiences. I can never deny that. Does that so mean we should eat? You mentioned a mushroom. So that's a different, that's another question I wanted to ask for you. Yeah. So, you know, fungi, they say is, is not really a plant. It's kind of somewhere between plant and animal. Like how do those fit in with this conversation? Do you feel like those are also 
really just useful for potential medicines, but not really an, an optimal food like for our species. Not an optimal food for humans. They're in the same predicament. Fungi generally don't run away from you. All right. They've so had they to, to become, they've had to defend themselves too. You have to think like the plant, right? Think quote unquote, put your, you know, extend the, extend the human consciousness into the plant consciousness. They're, they're, they're not, they're not mobile. They're sessile, right? So think about how many toxic mushrooms there are that will kill you dead instantly. Right. Yeah. It's like the same proportion of toxic plants. If I go out and just start swiping plants out of the yard, I'm going to be pooping my brains out and vomiting. If I just go start eating mushrooms, I might even be dead by this afternoon, which Probably. is going to make it real hard to, to do the workout that I had planned. So it's not a good idea. Occasionally there are mushrooms that will not kill you dead, but to make those the majority of your diet is like, that doesn't make any sense. Plants also must be, um, mushrooms specifically must be cooked extremely well to break down their chitinous cell walls. There's really no nutritional value in a mushroom if it's raw. And there are many mushrooms that we eat today that are frankly toxic if you eat them raw, like uh, the agaricus, the agaritine mushrooms, the white button mushrooms, portobello, cremini, they're all the same genus, which is agaricus. Um, and uh, they, they're all, they all contain agaritine, which is a toxin. So by cooking them, you get rid of most of the toxin, but the intention of the mushroom is clear hey, I'm toxic, don't eat me, you're not gonna like this, I'm not good for you. Even though that the mushroom that we see come out of the ground is really the fruit? Yeah, like, yeah. Because when I think of, you know, I've heard you speak about um, like this toxicity spectrum, which I'd like to get into soon, but, and how, you know, obviously if, uh, you know, if you just eat half a head of cabbage out of the ground, like that cabbage is not in good shape. You've just like, you know, really reduced its chance of survival. But when you eat the fruit of a tree, like you could eat all the apples on a tree and the tree still survives. Um, and like, can, is that, what, like when we buy a mushroom in a store or pick one from the ground, isn't that the fruit and the real? Um, not really. It's fungi, not? fungi don't have fruit. They have fruiting bodies. Fruiting bodies. It's yeah. kind of just syntax. It's just botany, gotcha. right? Um, it's the fruiting body from which the spores are released. It's not really the fruit. The okay. fungi doesn't want the fruit to get eaten in the same way plants want their fruit to get eaten. So this is a good okay. segue into sort of my ideas of a spectrum of plant toxicity. If you think about it from, a, from the perspective of a plant, and I'm glad we were able to elaborate on the different types of toxins and the problems with the hormetic theory, a seed, a plant seed is the most vulnerable part of a plant. It's like a little plant baby. And, you know, if we think about human babies or deer babies or elephant babies, they're totally vulnerable. And if a predator comes by, they're just going to get picked off. Well, plants are pretty smart. They made their babies little freaking ninjas. They put so many defense mechanisms into their babies. They have digestive enzyme inhibitors and oxalates and phytic acid, and sometimes frankly toxic things in the seeds, cyanide, hydrocyanic acid derivatives, you know, compounds that are very, very toxic to animals. So plant seeds look vulnerable, but they are darn defended. Now, I think of plant seeds as the most toxic part of a plant. And this includes seeds, nuts, grains, and legumes. They're all seeds. They're all seeds. And so people love to eat nuts and then they wonder why their stomach hurts or they wonder why they're farting and wonder why they're, they have gas because- I'm totally guilty of that. Yeah, like, yeah. I love I mean, seeds, but the day after, I'll, it'll be like tender in my large intestines. Yeah. And I'm like, that's not right. If this was when good I, for me, it would when not When I was a that. raw vegan, I can't even tell you how much almond cheese I ate. And I, I also can't tell you how often my stomach hurt, right? And this is like sprouted almonds. Like I would go to these like vegan dinners, these gourmet vegan dinners with all these other people. 
and that these are sprouted almonds and they're making these amazing cheesy almond desserts. And I just had so, like, if you have any questions about almonds, eat a lot of almonds and you'll understand what happens. Uh, and you can even sprout the heck out of them. Those almonds are just not going to agree with your stomach. That's a plant seed that does not want to get eaten. In fact, a few generations ago, almonds were frankly toxic and would kill us. We have hybridized them to the point that they're edible, kind of like white potatoes, but the intention of the plant remains. We can try and breed out the toxins enough that we can sort of eat them, but plant seeds, whether it's a pecan or an almond or a macadamia nut, these are not for human consumption. They don't want us to eat these. You could survive on them in some situations, but they're just not optimal human food. Plants don't want these to get eaten. And I promise you, you will feel so much better when you cut these out of your diet. Now, again, this gets to challenging all of our deeply held beliefs. And we have to go back to the beginning of the conversation. Are we willing to take a breath to step outside of what we believe to be true and to think about all this? But it's, you know, plant seeds do not want to get eaten and they are highly defended. Well, plant leaves and stems don't want to get eaten either. So what is kale? Kale is a plant seed. Kale is a plant leaf and a stem. And, you know, rhubarb is a plant stem. And then the roots are below ground. They're a little less defended, but a lot of roots are very toxic as well. I mean, potatoes, they're tubers, but they're, you know, they're pretty darn toxic. Potatoes are part of the nightshade family as well. They have solar. Even when you cook them, can you cook out any? You can try. I mean, you can, you could detoxify it, but there's, they could still potentially trigger a lot of immuno, immunologic reactions in many people. So again, this is all just a tool. If right. someone's listening to this and they're thriving, don't change a thing. Yeah. Just do what you're doing and email me and tell me what you're doing because I want to know about it. And I want to give you a high five, but if somebody's not thriving, yeah, those little green sprouts on potatoes, those are the, those are the eyes of potatoes. The reason you get rid of them is because those have solanine. You know, those have solanine, those have a toxin in them. And potatoes used to be so toxic that we couldn't even eat them. So we found ways to sort of detoxify these things, but at the same time, we have to be very careful. So some roots are less toxic, but generally seeds, leaves, and stems are very highly toxic and should not be part of our diet. Well, so where do we go wrong as like a culture? Like how do we get to the place where these things are presented like the foods that we should use to thrive on? Kale has a good publicist, man. What can I say? <laughs> You know, if you look at indigenous cultures, they don't really eat a lot of seeds. Occasionally they'll eat nuts. There's, you know, African cultures that like magongo nuts, but you know, they're, they're generally, we, I don't know. So vegetable, the word vegetable, where did that come from? What are the roots of the word vegetable? I think that indigenous cultures, hunter gatherers don't eat vegetables. There's a tribe in the Amazon recently contacted by a Harvard anthropologist named Douglas, uh, Douglas London, the Kaiwi Menno. K-A-W-Y-E-N-O, Kaiwi Meno, K-A-W-Y-M-E-N-O. They don't eat vegetables. They just eat meat and organs and fruit seasonally. And we can talk about fruit. Plants kind of want you to eat their fruit. I think a fruit is the least toxic parts of plants. And many vegetables we think of are actually fruit. Things like avocado or squash or berries, which is why I was trying to reincorporate squash in my own diet. I think these can be less toxic. Cucumber is a fruit. Um, some fruits are nightshades, so those can be problematic as well. But generally speaking, indigenous cultures don't go around eating nuts and leaves and stems very much. They'll eat occasionally tubers if they know which tuber is less toxic. But our ancestors knew this. Indigenous cultures, hunter-gatherer tribes understand a spectrum of plant toxicity. In the Amazon, a lot of cultures will eat the liana vine and combine it with another vine to have hallucinogenic experiences with DMT. But again, that's medicine, that's, not That's medicine. Food. That's not, they're not eating it as food. 
They're not eating plant leaves and stems as food. They're eating roots occasionally when they can get less toxic roots, but there are a lot of very toxic roots out there. They'll eat the fruit when it's available seasonally. And if they can get honey, they love that. And so the hods of hunter-gatherers eat a lot of honey. Uh, it's very interesting. So there's a lot of nuance here that we've lost. It's just, we have amnesia. 2020, yeah. I mean, it's again, like all, all I know is what I've experienced in the last 20 years. And unless I or you or the listener has spent a lot of time with hunter-gatherer groups, we're very likely to be, you know, victims of amnesia. Now, I want to say that I'm hoping to go spend some time with the Hadza next year if the whole coronavirus thing abates eventually. I've never spent time with hunter-gatherer groups in person, but I've done a lot of traveling and I've spent a lot of time in the wilderness. It's not a personal, not a perfect proxy, but part of the reading that I did for the book was anthropology. And I think that's some of the most interesting research that I did trying to construct this is thinking about the way that people outside of our Western culture live. If all we know in terms of gathering food and hunting food is the grocery store, then how would we think any differently? That's the only narrative we've been told. But go outside, go backpacking, go into the wilderness of any latitude you want, whether it's South America or North America or the Alps or the Arctic, Look at how many plants are edible. Very few. Yeah. Look at how many animals are edible. Every single oh. one, except for occasionally poisonous frogs in the Amazon that are too small to even worry about in the first place because you don't want to eat those or a puffer fish liver, you know? So like go in the wilderness and this will all be clear. It's, and it, again, that's why I like to present it in a non-dogmatic way. Gotcha. We've only known as humans what we see in the grocery store. That is how we hunt and gather. Of course, we believe this to be true. We're completely, we're completely ignorant. We're like toddlers in the realm of food, hunting and gathering. But if you've ever hunted, you know what it's like to kill an animal and you know how religious that is, how sacramental that is. Um, a lot of people- I want, I want to get into, uh, sorry to cut you off. I want to get into the animals. I want to get into the benefits of it. I know that I've experienced a lot of them, but I had one kind of odd question for you before transitioning. Yeah. I think we've laid some foundation that uh, this- toxicity spectrum that plants exist on is is very real and there's a very rational reason why they have these toxins a lot of them are to tell us not to eat them and some of them for other reasons like from what i understand like uh i'll give you an example like oxalates which can lead to kidney stones like plants have that because it binds to minerals it's a way of a plant to hold on to the minerals it needs like calcium so when we eat it it might bind to our calcium and it could if we don't get rid of it could um, you know, develop into a stone and so forth. So there's a lot of reasons why the compounds in them might not be good for us. Um, but there's, there's one food that is my personal favorite when I'm looking for a carbohydrate and I'm thinking about toxicity and I wanted to get your opinion and it's figs. Cause I've learned that botanically that they're like flowers technically. And I love them. And I, I'm afraid, I didn't want, I was afraid to ask you because I don't want any bad news. <laughs> but, <laughs> but That's I mean, how you know that, you're, that, you're, that your framework <laughs> is going to be challenged. Yeah, like, I, if it's not good for me, I don't know if I want to know, but any thought of eating a, what's technically a flower? I know it's sugar, but like I exercise a lot of a very active lifestyle. I don't eat a lot of number of meals, so I can handle some carbohydrate, I think. Um, what's your take on figs? Pretty high in oxalates, man. Oh, don't tell me that. Pretty high in oxalates. And some fruit is even high in oxalates. Now, 
Oxalate sensitivity is individual. Some people are more or less sensitive to oxalates. Some people have a bacteria in their gut called oxalobacter formigenes that can break down oxalates. If you have an oxalate problem, you don't want to have figs in your diet. Right. If you have a small yeah. amount of figs, you could do a kiwi are also pretty high in oxalates. So it's individual. Um, some fruit is not that great for humans in terms of that stuff. But I agree. Uh, figs are a flower. I mean, most fruit is from a flower. You know, fruit is... Gotcha. Flowers are pollinated and it kind of grows into a fruit, like a strawberry or a blueberry. I mean, that's how fruit is made. So, yeah, figs are flowers, but most fruit is sort of the the reproductive part. By the way, you mentioned oh. um, that bacteria, um, Oxalobacter formigenes. Formigenes. So, I guess that's the primary bacteria that we have to get rid of oxalates. And what I learned when I was going through my healing journey is that that bacteria is particularly sensitive to antibiotics. So if you've been on antibiotics and you and your health is not there, sometimes that's something to at least look at. Because when I got um, like, did you know, like the stool test to check for, you know, and I don't know how accurate this stuff is, but like all the microbiome diversity and where they name everything, I had zero of that oxalobacter for me. So, um, and that probably wasn't a coincidence, you know, three weeks of broad spectrum antibiotics and this thing that's known to be sensitive to that is all of a sudden depleted. And it was right around the time I was having health issues. I don't know, you know, if that was a direct correlation or what, but it's something for, I'm sure some people to consider. Um, let's talk meat because this is as, you know, one of your, I guess, three messages you're trying to get across is that, you know, this has been inappropriately vilified um, for a number of reasons and for a long time. And, um, you know, from personal experience, the more I eat, it seems to be the better I feel. And <laughs> I'd like to get into some aspects around morality and ethics and sustainability. But before that, maybe just from like a health perspective, like nutritionally, you know, what makes it so good. Right. So if you look at now, when I say meat, I mean meat and organs. Just like there are no hunter-gatherer cultures that really eat a lot of nuts or seeds or grains or, or leaves or stems, um, there are no hunter-gatherer cultures. There are no indigenous cultures. You know, I want to say wild humans uh, don't eat just the meat. They eat all the organs. And so there are unique nutrients distributed throughout the animal. In general, if you look at the bioavailability of vitamins and minerals and other nutrients in animal meat and organs, it dwarfs that of plants, whether you're talking about nitrogen availability, protein utilization, or the bioavailability of B vitamins or minerals, and just the absolute amounts of many of these things are much higher in animals. Now, there's a very interesting inequality that I like to talk about in this plants and animals discussion. There are no nutrients found in plants that cannot be found in animal foods. There are no nutrients found in plants that cannot be found in animal foods. But the reverse is not true. There are many unique nutrients that are necessary, that are integral for optimal human health, that are only found in animals. If that inequality is not enough for people to understand yeah. the relative value of plants versus animals in our diets, and animals eaten nose to tail, then I don't know what is. It's what a nutrients very profound statement right there. Yeah, what nutrients am I talking about? creatine, carnitine, choline, carnosine, answerine, taurine, full spectrum vitamin K2, menaquinones, B12, the list goes on and on. You cannot get these in plants. 
You cannot get them in any appreciable quantity in plants. You cannot. Now, when might you mention bioavailability, like I hear that thrown around a lot and, and I believe it. I just, I, I'm curious about it. Like, do we know, is that measurable? Like, can you, Very how measurable. do they do that? Do they measure it by seeing what you excrete after you eat? Or we can look at the levels in the blood. In the book, I discuss oysters, for instance. Oysters are a great source of zinc. So after you eat oysters or after you eat liver or heart, which has a lot of zinc in it, you'll see your blood levels of zinc rise. But there's an experiment that has been done in which they gave people oysters and they watched to see the rise in zinc levels in the blood. And then they gave people tortillas. And they gave people tortillas and beans, which have phytic acid and oxalates. And the levels of zinc in the blood were completely abolished. There was no rise in zinc. Mm. We didn't and that's because they bind to zinc. They bind mm-hmm. them. Those, those molecules, those chelating molecules bind to zinc. And so if you think almonds are a good source of magnesium, I hate to break it to you, but there's, no, there's really not much bioavailable magnesium in almonds at all. And that's because just because it's packaged with phytates. or phytates. phytates and oxalates. Yeah, yeah. And then there are other examples of bioavailability. B vitamins in plants tend to have... Uh, sugars attached to them which makes them which make them less bioavailable for instance there's evidence that b6 pyridoxine is 30 to 40 percent less bioavailable in plant foods b6 isn't really that available in plant foods in the first place but what is there is 30 to 40 percent less bioavailable than what's in animals heme iron is uh, an iron atom encased in a porphyrin ring and that's exactly how our body wants to absorb it and that's what's more bioavailable that's in animal meat and liver and kidneys and heart Spleen is a really good source of heme iron. There's an there's a absolute epidemic of iron deficiency anemia. And it's more in women because of menstruation and, and inadequate consumption of red meat. But there's a lot of people that are iron deficient. Restless legs is a condition that's often connected with iron deficiency. Yeah. Uh, many women don't have enough ferritin. And, and a lot of vegans and vegetarians don't have enough iron stored as ferritin. Plant iron is non-heme iron. We really can't absorb it. Then you talk about protein and the, the amino acids found in plants are not as bioavailable as animals. That's just, the, that's just the fact of the matter. There's a score called the DIAS, the Digestible Indispensable Amino Acid Score. Plant protein is about half as bioavailable as animal protein. And that's so just- how, Do you know how they do that, is that um, scoring tool that you just mentioned? Yeah. Like how do they how do they know that? Is that the same? They've generally idea done it. They've done it looking at blood levels of amino acids. Yeah, looking at blood meals? levels and looking at what is digested for dias scoring. A lot of times they use animal models and they'll actually make a hole in the animal's stomach Ooh. and feed an animal protein and then see how much comes out the other end. Gotcha. Yeah, so okay. they feed an animal plant versus animal protein and see how much comes out. Yeah, so you can see how much is absorbed and how much is excreted. And plant protein is twice as excreted. You don't absorb it. And then there are unique nutrients in amino acid, there are unique amino acids found in animal foods that just aren't found in plants. Anserine, taurine, carnitine, carnosine. Then there's creatine, this phosphate group that we can make a small amount of, but we're not making an ideal amount of. And vegans and vegetarians are deficient in creatine. When we give them back creatine, they get smarter. There are experiments that have shown this. They improve on their scores on card sorting tasks and memory and numeric recall. So yeah, creatine is, is very interesting. And from what I understand, it's a pretty well-studied molecule. And I think it goes overlooked. I, I think I heard, I think it was um, Chris Masterjohn speaking about it once, talking about how I think uh, some like really high amount of energy that we use is to basically create 
creatine or and that if you just get enough well, to your diet it like takes the burden off methylation and all it's the methylation other a lot methylation. of methylation so a, a number of methyl groups so people will quote you know half of your methyl groups go to making creatine Right. Um, but you can take the burden by getting a lot in your diet. And where do you get creatine? Meat. Animal, animal meat and organs. You don't get it in plants. So yeah, this is the relative value of plants versus animals. And when we're talking about animal foods, I've said this a few times, but I really want to drive this point home. You can't just eat meat. Right. You can't just eat meat. Meat is a great source of a few things, iron, zinc, pyridoxine, B12. But where do you get your copper? Where do you get your folate? Where do you get your riboflavin? Where do you get your biotin? Where do you get all your choline? Where do you get your retinoic acid? Where do you get your vitamin A, which is retinoic acid? Where do you get these nutrients? You get them in animal organs, liver, heart, kidney, spleen, pancreas. Now, when I say these things, people are like, gross. I will never eat those. And I knew that. I mean, I eat those every day, but having people like my sister, my parents in mind, and I really believe that one of the big tragedies of the last few hundred years of our, of our progression, if we can call it a progression, it's more like a regression as humans, is that we have stopped eating organs. So there's been a lot of things that have changed since we've become domesticated humans versus wild humans. One of them is we've started eating the wrong types of plants, right? And the other is that we have stopped eating the right parts of animals. So what have we stopped eating? We've stopped eating the organs. And so with my mom and my sister and my niece and nephew in mind, I started Heart and Soil, which is just my company that makes desiccated organ supplements. And I so, thank you for that, by the way. I've got yeah. a couple of bottles so far. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to some of the new ones coming out. We just out. released them today. I don't know when this podcast is coming out, but we just released oh, nice. Gut and Digestion and Firestarter today. And we're I'm very interested in the uh, Blood Builder. We're so, going to have Blood Builder is coming like next week. So, so I've been playing around with organs. I've been buying, um, so I've been trying to find ways. I've been inspired by it. And I've been trying to find ways to work it in. There's a couple products that, um, that I found useful. I found like a liverwurst that's, that's palatable enough. And I've tried to cook liver a bunch of times. I can't seem to get it where I could really handle more than a few bites <laughs> before. It's just, I want to like it and I'll get it down just because I, dem I go through life, I demand nutrients. Like I demand the things that I know are good for me. Yeah. I don't let things get in the way. And I can hand, I take a lot of supplements. I can handle some like disgusting things. But um, I order like periodically, I order a quarter cow from a, a local pasture farm and, um, and he gives me a lot of organs and they're so big. And I live in a house with six people, but nobody else will eat any of this stuff. And it's like, what do I, like once it comes frozen, so what, like I gotta defrost it to work with it, but then I don't wanna refreeze. Maybe that's, you know, in my head unnecessarily. You can refreeze it, it's fine. Can I? Okay, because yeah. like I, I had heart, it's like, it's so big. And it's like, I don't wanna leave it in the fridge and just nosh on it for a week or two and let it go bad. So <laughs> I'm like, I don't know how to portion these things. And that's why, that's one of the reasons. I'm really grateful that you're coming out that you came out with this product line because um, I was exploring with another company. I think there's not a lot of them out there and they're not in this country and the supply chain doesn't seem great for it. And, um, and the convenience of having like to be able to just take a few capsules and get that nutrients and not have to deal with the, this, like the logistics of managing these weird proportions and, um, and obviously just not having to taste it. I mean, I made 
sweetbreads, which I guess is the thymus. Mm -hmm. And that seemed tolerable, but it's really like the only organ that I didn't find hard to get down from a taste profile. Organs are challenging. Um, and, and sort of the, in, in wild humans, when we kill an animal, often the, the person that killed the animal gets the heart. That's like, you know, the sort the of, this, yeah, this spiritual reward. It's like a very unique set of muscle meat, has unique nutrients, it's particularly prized. And the liver is often so sacred that it's eaten raw, distributed immediately among the tribe. And sometimes in some tribes, like the Nuer tribe of Africa, it's so sacred that it can't even be touched by human hands. And so like the organs are just sacrosanct. They're, they're sacred things. And we've become squeamish with them, understandably, but it's just like, you asked the question earlier, how did vegetables become such a big deal? Well, how did organs not become a big deal? It's the same sort of, you might call it gentrification or regression of the human diet. We've, we've become domesticated humans from wild humans. And I, I don't think we have to become completely wild. I mean, I like wearing clothes, although sometimes I feel like I want to run around in a loincloth or I wouldn't mind just being barefoot all the time. And I don't wear shoes that much actually. But I think that if we really want to reclaim our ancestral birthright to foundational health, to radical health, we have to get a little more wild. We have to remember that we are wild humans and the way that wild humans live and eat is different than what we're doing today. And part of that is consuming organs. And if getting desiccated organs is the way that people can do it, then I'm super happy to do that uh, for people. And, um, and if it's not, then, then there are other ways they can do it fresh. But yeah, what we're doing at Hardened Soil feels very, very meaningful for me too. And it makes me feel so good when my sister is eating them and her husband is eating them and my niece and nephew are eating them and thriving. And I can get my parents who are 70 years old now to eat organs, which is now, never going to Now, if I want happen. to sneak those into meals for my family, can I open those up and empty it out? Or will, that, will cooking it ruin it? I wouldn't cook it because it's desiccated. So, so I could sprinkle would, it on after food yeah. is cooked. I could sprinkle it on top. Yep. Yep. So if people, if you're cooking for people in your family, you can just empty the capsule into the food and mix it in and you won't really taste it. Or it's actually kind of savory. Every capsule is going to taste differently. But right now we've got beef organs, bone marrow and liver. We released fire starter and gut and digestion today. Right. And you can just empty them onto food. My sister mixes them into applesauce or avocado, right. or you can mix them into ground beef once it's cooked. You don't want to cook them because one of the nice things about the organ supplements is they're desiccated. They're freeze dried, meaning we put them in a freeze dryer and we dehydrate them at a temperature of like 34 degrees. So it, we dehydrate them very cold, which means they're not cooked and a lot of the okay. nutrients are preserved. So it's like the closest thing to eating raw in a yes. way that you can package up. Yes. Yeah, I'm really grateful that you're doing that. And, you know, it feels like, I feel like it's disrespectful. Like, I love animals. And I've, I've wrestled and, and played with some different, like, um, I guess, moral components of this conversation in my head over the years. And, and, um, and I feel like it's, like, dishonoring the animal to not, to, to, like, to waste. Like, it gave its life. And sometimes I even think about, when I think about what animals I want to eat, like, I... I like chicken, but I feel like I could easily eat a whole chicken in a day and then some. So like if I really wanted to feed myself, I have to exchange a lot of life just for my, like, I feel selfish almost. Whereas I could, you know, two cows could feed me for a year eating a lot. I mean, 
people say like, this it yeah. seems more reasonable and i know all these animals are going to die and we're going to die and if we don't and i feel like like i want to live the most fulfilled life i can and then at, at the end i want my ending to be as compressed and short as possible and painless and you know it's free as much as suffering and i feel like that's what i want from the animal too like i want it to live exactly how it would love to live and then i want it to die in the most humanely way as possible and then i don't want to waste any of it out of respect for its existence and we, yeah i think that goes overlooked and i i think some like when i talk to people that really heavily plant-based diets they'll argue like some ethics with me and i don't think people realize how many animals are killed in the process of like getting kale to go from you know the middle of the country to your grocery store and how much death is involved with that and the you know carbon footprint and so forth well, an ecosystem's disruption. I think eating animals is the most vegan thing we can do. It's the most ethical. <laughs> I mean, That's there's great. there's yeah, there's there's people that say carnivore is vegan. Um, if we are trying to look, in order for something to live, something else must die. This is the way of life. It's not. Right. It's not. It's not bad. It it, in my opinion, it gives us all a responsibility to live responsibly and to live kindly. And I think that if more of us hunted and gathered we would have a much greater respect and reverence for the way that we are gifted with life in our food every day. If we don't eat, we're going to die. Mm -hmm. And we just go to the grocery store. I think grocery stores are the, big, the biggest disconnection. They're the biggest promoter of amnesia, the biggest domesticator of us and all these things. If we actually had to go hunt that meat or gather those berries or that peach, we would, every time we ate that, we would think, wow, I appreciate this so much. It changes the way you live your life. It's all a gift. And you would frequently experience fasting times of famine, which would remind you how valuable these foods were. We would never waste a single thing. People who don't eat liver have never been hungry enough. <laughs> and that's okay. You know, we can, they can eat desiccated organs and I'll, it'll help them get a foot in the door and it'll help their nutrition massively. But when you're hunting something, and that deer or bison or elk is your food and your family's food, you are going to eat every single bit of that animal and use the hide to make a drum or right. uh, to make clothes or to make a shelter. You're gonna use the wool to make a blanket. You're gonna eat the bones and the bone marrow. You're gonna eat every single piece because that entire animal is a gift. And that's what we're doing at Hardened Soil. We want people to understand that these are the parts that are, that are forsaken. But I love what you said also, when, I don't understand the ethics of eating plants that are raised in a monocrop agriculture system. So many people who engage in these vegan vegetarian diets out of good intention have never been to a monocrop farm and seen where their food is grown. I would challenge them to come with me to White Oak Pastures or Belcampo, regenerative animal farms and see animals on a pasture within an ecosystem that is thriving. There's sheep on the pasture, there's cows on the pasture, there's animals running around, there's mice and rats and voles and you know, ferrets and there's birds swooping down and there's bugs and there's insects and there's grass growing on the grassland. It's an ecosystem, it's sustainable. It's putting carbon back into the ground. You can look at these farms and see the amount of carbon in the soil increasing, which holds more rainwater when there's a rain event and prevents erosion. And that is in stark contrast to a monocrop farm that grew the kale or the cabbage or the lettuce or the broccoli that you're eating. That soil is destroyed. That soil is depleted of carbon because there's no animals to put it back. And all of the animals that lived in that piece of ground are dead. 
the rabbits, the voles, the earthworms, the beetles, their ecosystem is destroyed. If we are talking life for life, taking one life from a cow respectfully is the least amount of life that we could ever do, that we could ever take. You know, f tilling a field is destroying millions of times more lives wow. than raising one animal and killing that animal respectfully. And people won't, they'll try and create some sort of human construct of hierarchy, like a cow is, more, is gonna endure more pain. Well, cows die in a very humane way. They have one bad day, they, they die instantly and they don't suffer. We and should all like, be so lucky, one bad day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, one bad day. I hope you or I just have one oh, bad Lord. day and then we move on to the next life and then our bodies will nourish the ground as well. I want my body to go back to the earth. I don't wanna be in a hermetically sealed sarcophagus. I wanna be dumped in the ocean and you know, or on the top of a mountain and let other, let other animals, you know, feed off of meat. I'm just so, renting these atoms. Right. These, these atoms are not That's mine. And, you know, like these atoms in transition. Yeah, these are all in transition. These are not mine. I'm renting them for a short amount of time. They will go back to the earth. But my responsibility while I'm alive is to be the most kind human and to communicate as, as best I can. This is my calling. I think this path chose me rather than me choosing this path. And my job is to be as clear-headed, to be as healthy, to share this message, to share this truth, what I believe to be a truth, this tool with people to help them regain health. And then eventually these atoms will go back to the earth and become something else. If any of us believes that we are the, the sole owner or inheritor of our corporeum, we're wrong, you know? And so right. it's okay. Like death is a part of life. It's beautiful but we should do it ethically and responsibly. And there are many ways to farm animals, regenerative agriculture that are very ethical, that return nutrients to the land, that are sustainable, that are the way these animals have been living for millions of years, and that are completely, in my opinion, the center of our persistence as a human race. So I believe that you're right, uh, spot on actually. And I think it is, they have proven these regenerative farms to be sustainable. One of my questions or concerns would be from like, a, I guess a more macro view is, is it scalable? Like, like we would have, like, how would we ever get to a point where you could really feed everybody this way? Like you'd have to go out with, without going into these, you know, big mega farms where animals, you know, aren't treated well and they aren't able to graze. Like what's the long-term solution is it to everything to get more and more local where like every community has its own farm? Like, is it really scalable to feed as many people that there are now? So this is an interesting argument. There are two pieces to this, the scalability and how do we feed everyone on the planet? The how do we feed everyone on the planet is a straw man argument because how did we get 7 billion people on the planet? We got seven people, 7 billion people on the planet by not living within an ecosystem, by not being hunter-gatherers who were constrained by hunting and gathering in an ecosystem. We succumbed to the cult of the seed, as Jared Diamond has said, we became pastoralists. The way we got 7 billion people on the planet was by eating food that we farmed, right? Mm -hmm. Not by hunting animals. So the, what got us into this mess was eating a lot of grains and shitty food that over allowed our population to expand. So we can't really, the scalability argument is asking the same, is asking the wrong question. Is there enough food on the planet for 7 billion people period? No. Are, is there a way to feed the number of people on this planet sustainably with any food system? No. It's definitely not monocrop agriculture because that's just gonna create more and more sick people. 
right? right? And it's going to destroy the earth. It's going to destroy the soil and we're, it's all going to collapse. So what we're doing now, lest anyone think that what we're doing now is sustainable, just because we haven't collapsed on this day in September, 2020, doesn't mean that what we're doing now is sustainable. So all these straw man arguments about meat isn't scalable are bullshit in my opinion, because they're based on a fallacy. And that fallacy is that what we're doing now is scalable. Or what we're doing now is the right thing. If we actually wanna talk about scalability, I will say this. In the United States of America, almost every single piece of meat that is sold, whether it's grain finished or grass fed, spent 85% of its life on pasture. 85% of its life on pasture. We could wipe out grain finishing of cattle tomorrow. We could raise every single cow today. Every single bit of meat that is raised today could be 100% grass fed and grass finished, okay? Now, there is also a large amount of acreage managed by the Conservation Reserve Program, which is a government program that pays farmers to let their land lie fallow, to let their land have be resting. How did the land get so destroyed in the first place? Because they monocropped the hell out of it, because they monocropped all the nutrients out of it. So they are paid millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars by the federal government to let their land lay empty. How do you rehabilitate that land faster? By putting animals on it. How do you make the soil regenerate? How do you make the soil richer? You put animals on it. It takes 20 to 30 to 40 to 50 years to regenerate land when it's fallow, when there's nothing growing. If you put animals, you can have that or cut it in a quarter. At White Oak Pastures, they've been able to increase the amount of soil carbon from 0.5 to over 5% in 20 years. That may not sound like a lot, but that's a huge amount. Yeah. Soil that is 5% carbon looks like coffee grounds. It's dark, it's dirt. It holds one inch of rain for every 1% of carbon. One inch of rain, that means a soil that is 5% carbon can hold five inches of rain. That is a massive rain event mm. before runoff occurs. Most soil, that's monocropped is less than 0.5%. Any rain is gonna run right off that. It's gonna destroy ecosystems, gonna go into watersheds and all the topsoil minerals are gone. So what we're doing now is not sustainable. What we should be doing is putting more land into animal agriculture. I don't know if there's any way for us to feed 7 billion, let alone eight or 9 billion people on this planet, but that's really, like I said, that's the wrong argument. How do we make your family and my family and other families healthy one by one? And right. that's what we need to scale. We need to scale animal agriculture in the correct way. That's the only way that the human race will persist. The only way. We've gotten into this mess by overly relying on non-ecosystems-based sort of agriculture, non-ecosystems-based farming. So we can scale it. It's, you could feed everyone in the country more meat if you took all that land that's in the conservation reserve and put cattle on it. How much land in this country is farmed with corn? Hundreds of thousands of acres. Where does the corn go? It goes to ethanol for our gas tank and some of it goes to grain feeding of cattle. Let's get rid of all that. We don't need to put ethanol in our gas. We don't need to feed cattle corn. Now there's a lot of corn and soy lobbies in Congress that'll have a fit with this, right? Where does the soy go? The soy goes to feed cows. A lot of the grain production goes to feed cows. Stop doing that. Put cows on that land, grass feeding, grass finishing them, and you just freed up a ton of land. You've also stopped spraying thousands of acres, hundreds of thousands of acres with glyphosate and other pesticides. The problem is clear. It's corn and soy lobbies. Gotcha. It's, that our, it's that our government subsidizes farmers to produce worthless grains that go to make ethanol and feed for cattle that make those cattle less healthy. It's just, it's all wrapped up in the same now system. That seems like an overwhelming like uh, opposition to battle. Oh yeah, absolutely. It is. But I, mean, I am honored to be a conduit for, for you to, <laughs> to help spread the message. 
it starts one yeah. person at a time, you know? Right. I think we have to think about scalability, but also we should not get lost in scalability. Yeah, it's a good point. So let's say somebody wants to start and this, let's say this is the first, they've heard of this topic and they, you know, they're not ready to start ordering organs and meat only and give up all their plants. Like how does somebody start? And again, like you mentioned earlier, if you're, if you feel like you're killing it, like keep on killing it, like you don't necessarily need to change. But I know that there's a lot of people out there that just don't have the sense of well-being that they feel they deserve. And if somebody wants to look at it as like, I want to, I want to try something. I want to create some change in my life. And I know nutrition is this really big lever I could work with. How, how do you recommend somebody starting out? Uh, I think you start with just, you start by incorporating more well-raised animal meat and organs in your diet. Don't fear red meat. Get the desiccated organs if you can't do that. And critical first step is eliminate vegetable oils. So eliminate linoleic acid in excess amounts. It's, in, it's present in small amounts in our food, but that's not a big deal. Eliminate it from vegetable oils, include more meat and organs. And then the third step is figure out which plants are the most toxic, eliminate those and go from there. But just start vegetable with one thing. Vegetables seem like they're in everything. Like they're pervasive. Yeah. yeah. Oh, if somebody eliminates vegetable oils, they won't be able to eat processed food, which is a great thing. So right, yeah. vegetable oils are in everything. These are corn, canola, soy, safflower, uh, sunflower, peanut. You don't want any of these. And people say, well, what oil can I cook with? And I say, why are you cooking with oil in the first place? Don't cook with oil or just cook with animal fat. Butter, if you tolerate dairy or ghee or tallow is my favorite. Yeah, tallow and ghee is what I seem to lean on. Mm -hmm. Good flavor profile and mm -hmm. I get uh, no negative response from it. Good, physically. yeah. 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 It's funny, I went, um, recently I went camping, so six days in the woods by myself on a campground in middle Pennsylvania just a couple of weeks ago and I brought all my food. I, I looked at it as an opportunity because I'm away from my house to like, let me, you know, be strict because I believe in all this message you have, but I just find it very challenging to be strict because of my environment with other people and my responsibility to feed everybody. And um, so I brought, I got like a Yeti cooler, filled it up. I brought six pounds of ground beef, all, you know, all I buy is the grass fed stuff, six pounds of ground beef, six 14 ounce Delmonico steaks, three cans of sardines and two packs of like sugar-free hot dogs for six days. This is all, oh, <clears throat> and two packs of dry figs. And, um, and that's all I ate. And I didn't exercise like intentionally because um, gearing up to this, my exercise was uh, getting a little, like I needed a break a little bit. I was um, overtraining a little bit. So I just walked the campground like three or four times a day and ate this food and sat and read and like meditated and laid in a hammock and was fairly sedentary for, for me. And I got home the leanest I've ever been. Like, <laughs> ripped, like, like when my six pack is in, you know, full expression, I feel so good. And it's funny cause I'm walking around the campground meeting, there's like a handful of families there. And um, you know, I met them all and the nicest people all, uh, I would say, I'm not judging, but like they appear to be pretty unhealthy people, you know, 50 to 100 pounds of excess fat tissue, like, and, you know, I'm getting in conversation with them and they hear about what I do for a living and we start talking food and they hear what I brought for food 
and they're want, you know they're inviting me to their campfires and offering me food and and I'm not interested and they hear what I'm eating and you know they're like well, you should be dead you know <laughs> like why how are you even here and you could see their curiosity they're like you know they're clearly and one guy I talked to and he just had like a foot of his colon removed nicest man been listening to his doctor forever follows his doctor's advice just had a foot of his colon removed I'm like I don't think that's normal like that's a sign that whatever the, he's the advice he's giving is probably not I, ideal and they're looking at me in kind of confusion and eventually they were asking questions and wanted to learn something but you know habit change is not the easiest thing for some folks but but uh, it was like it was the strictest I've been in a while um, you know, sometimes I'll be strict for a few days and then it starts with some condiments and then like I kind of get off course and then all of a sudden my six pack disappears and I get strict again. And But uh, that was probably the healthiest I felt from a body composition standpoint in my entire adult life when I was, and it, it, it was so fast, it was six days. Like no matter where you are in your state of health, like you're never that far away from I think making a dramatic improvement if you're willing to you know break down your belief systems and be open-minded to try something that you know is obviously might seem unorthodox might seem alternative but really you know what we're experiencing now at the grocery store that's alternative like that's the weird stuff and this is really just coming you know remembering coming home to what's what is natural to us yeah wild versus domesticated humans yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I want to thank you so much for uh, taking the time out today. If people want to find out more about you, they want to get a hold of your book or try your supplements, how do they go about uh, finding more? The best place to find me is heartandsoil.co.co. So heartandsoil.co, everything is there. There's a link to my book. All the supplements are there. We've got all my podcasts, all the videos I've done. There's a real wealth of information there. And you can also email me directly, Dr. Paul, drpaul at heartandsoil.co. If you have questions, happy to try and troubleshoot those with people. But yeah, everything is at heartandsoil.co. Great. And we will put links in the description of this for the listeners out there. Paul, once again, I thank you personally for the impact you've had on my life. And I know I'm speaking on behalf of the clients that I've worked with that have also experienced pretty profound, positive um, change in their in their sense of well-being from from your work. So I, I thank you. And I, again, I'm honored to be a conduit for your message. And I would uh, love to just help spread this word going forward. For the listeners out there, I'm grateful for your listening today. Really glad that you tuned in. And I hope you stick around for more episodes soon. I hope everybody has a terrific day. Well, I want to thank everybody again for tuning in and listening to the episode. Again, I'm really grateful for Dr. Saladino for taking the time and spreading some of his wisdom with us. If you have any questions about these topics, then please send them in and we'll do our best to respond. And if you have yourself experienced you know, anything from trying some of these strategies, I would love to get your feedback and uh, you know, please share that with the community. Dr. Paul Saladino has really been on a mission I recently of creating some products that I think can complement someone's diet really well when you want to get the benefits of the most nutrient-dense foods that are out there, which seem to be the, the organs of a, a well-raised animal. And they're very hard to 
integrate into your lifestyle for some folks and his products make that a lot more available to us. He's been nice enough to offer a discount for our listeners. If you want to check out at heartandsoilsupplements.com, uh, use the coupon code MINDFUL, and he's provided a discount to our listeners. So thank you, Dr. Saladino, for doing that. Again, I hope you find something of use for this. This doesn't necessarily need to be a all or nothing thing. So his ideas can be added to the toolbox of you know, when we're looking to control our sense of well-being and our lifestyle, this is a tool that we could tap into. And what I would challenge you to do is to just try. Uh, dip your toe in a little bit. However, that seems to be right for you. So everybody's in a different place and you know, some people like to dive in and be really strict with new ideas to try them out. And you know, some people gotta you know, walk into the water really slowly. So I wanna honor you know, wherever you are and what your style is. But I do encourage you, especially if you find yourself really fighting the ideas internally. Like it just, you just can't give in to this being you know, potentially true or something then take a look at that and look at why you feel that way. And I, I'm willing to bet that there's an opportunity for your own growth, not just to you know, try something different in the kitchen, but also just to practice the ability to let go of a, a tightly held, long held belief and see where it takes you. And if it doesn't work out, then that's okay. You could say you've tried but if you do get a positive outcome, be as honest with yourself as possible, you know, to acknowledge that and be grateful of this new tool that you have and see where it can take you. Again, thanks again. If you haven't yet, please send us a review on your podcast player. Be much appreciated and stay tuned for more episodes. You have a great day.